your Bibles, do turn with me. I'm in um, 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, uh, and we're going to be in verses 8 and 9. So 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I'm reading from the ESV. Um, I'll just read it, and then we will pray, and then we will get stuck in. So, though you have not seen him, this is Peter talking of Jesus, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining, taking hold of, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Lord, I thank you so much that you are God and that you call us to joy and to salvation. And Father, I pray right now as we come to look at this passage and as we continue our series in 1 Peter that we would see how those two things are taking hold of in faith those gifts that you give us and joy and obedience and uh, living for you how all of these things come together in you as we look at this passage I pray that you would open our eyes to that right now in your name amen so it's great to be uh, back it was great to have uh, John uh, Flavel with us last week as he uh, shared coming from River City and to hear from him and to hear the word that he unpacked for us this morning we're going to be back into uh, our 1 Peter series as we look at what it looks like to be uh, who we are in Christ these uh, heirs of the kingdom and priests demonstrating the world to the world who our God is, and all the while exiles, foreigners in this world. We've seen, even as we've started this letter, that Peter is writing to a group of churches in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. These churches are just now beginning to suffer for their faith. Uh, as they follow Jesus, they're encountering opposition. You know, it's come up in our worship, hasn't it? Opposition to the faith. And this is taking the form as we go through the letter we're going to see it's taking the form of being mocked and maligned uh, but it's also beginning to happen that the, the government is starting to uh, pre be prejudiced against Christians you know you see it through acts uh, people suffering for their faith but what happens almost immediately after this letter goes out is there is a Roman Empire wide persecution of Christians as Christians are fed to lions, covered in hot tar and burnt because of their faith. And Peter is writing into these churches who are beginning to feel, so that hasn't just started yet, but they're beginning to feel the unease of who they are, where they are. Uh, and, and Peter writes to encourage them to hold fast to the hope that they have, but also to set um, these sufferings in light of uh, and, and so that they can understand them in light of who Jesus has made them to be. They are heirs, heirs to a kingdom that isn't this one. They are priests demonstrating to the world who their God is and they are exiles. The reason you feel uneasy here is because you don't belong here. You're foreigners in this world. And so Peter's writing to these guys to, to make them secure in their identity and to bring them to understand everything that is happening in light of these things. 
We've seen Peter appeal to these things to stir faith and hope in the believers. Already in chapter 1 we've seen him do that again and again. Look to these things that where your hope is. Look to what Jesus is doing in you and what he's uh, going to do in you. And we're going to see as he continues on in this letter, he's going to keep pointing to those things as he calls the believers to live radically different lives to the world around them. He says, you know, don't be surprised when, the, when you suffer. Don't be surprised when you suffer because this is as, as though something strange were happening to you because of who you are. You're, you are living a life that is, uh, that is bringing challenge to the world around you. And he wants them to understand that, that they are called to be holy. It'll go on uh, next week. Uh, Sarah's going to be sharing with us a call of, of us, on us, uh, that God gives us, you know, you will be holy as I am holy. This radical living, this radical holiness. But before we go into the rest of this letter, what I want to do is I want to, um, we're kind of doubling back a little bit, so we're going to step back and we're going to zoom in on just these two passages and just see what, what Peter is doing here because I think what he's doing here gives us the tools we need to understand what's going to come in the rest of the letter and everything Peter's going to say about living holy living radically holy different lives comes and needs to be understood in light of I think what he's saying here in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1 you know I was, I was once uh invited to preach at a, a Christian Union, a University Christian Union, and uh, what they'd done is they'd given me two uh, sessions, two evening sessions, uh, come and speak to us, and they, what they'd done is they'd asked uh, the Christian Union, everybody in part of the Christian Union, do you have any questions about your faith? And uh, so they collected these questions, and they sent them to me, and they said, uh, you might want to group them together, you might want to uh, answer just one or two of them, but you've got two sessions, why don't you answer these questions? And I was expecting, when I got sent the list, I was expecting some really tough uh, theological questions, some questions around, you know, whatever it might be, uh, all, the, all the tough apologetics that, that could come up, that's what I was expecting. What I found was a list full of questions like, am I allowed to uh, listen to this? Am I allowed to watch this? Am I allowed to do this with my boyfriend? Am I allowed to drink this? Am I allowed to go and do this? And so it was just a list of things asking for a, a response of just a list of do's and don'ts. It's kind of, uh, you know, am I allowed to do this? Am I, is it permitted for me to um, do this with my boyfriend? Is it permitted for me to go and do this uh, that I'm seeing all my friends do? And actually, when you come to a letter like Peter's, you think, actually, he could, he could just write a, a letter that, that answers those questions. You know, Christians suffering the world um, and, and wanting to know what it looks like to be holy and live righteous lives uh, set apart for God. Peter could just write to them and say, well, here's the things that you do do and here are the things that you don't do. But, you know, and, and actually <laughs> some people think that's how the Bible works. Some people see the Bible as just being a, a big book of rules, you know, things, things to keep, an instruction manual. Um, I've seen it on I've seen it on billboards outside churches, you know, basic instructions before life ends. You're thinking, oh, no, there's something more about scripture than just instructions or rules. But that's how some people, even some Christians, view the Bible. But 
As we started, I, I, even you may remember, as we first started meeting as Freedom Church, we, as we came through that series devoted to looking at Acts 2, you know, what these early church devoted themselves to. And we looked at what it meant to be devoted to teaching, to, to Scripture. And we saw that the whole purpose of Scripture is to reveal to us Jesus. Now, we looked at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where, where Paul, talking about both preaching and Scripture, he says, We now, with unveiled face, behold the glory of God, are being transformed uh, into that same image, from one degree of glory to another. As we come to Scripture, what happens is we have our faces lifted, the veil is stripped away, and we see Jesus in his glory, and as we see him, we are transformed to be more and more like him. That's, that's what uh, the kind of the ultimate aim of an end of Christianity is one day Jesus is going to return, we're going to see him face to face, says John in his letter. 1 John, he says, we will see him and we will be like him because we're going to see him as he is. And what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians is that is what's happening as we open scripture, as we as we have preached to, we have our eyes lifted to see Jesus and, and we are met by glory and we are transformed to reflect that same glory. And I think what Peter is doing in these passages is he's zooming in and he's showing us something of what is happening in that moment. How does that process work? How is it that when we see glory, we become more glorious? How is it that when we see the fullness and richness of Jesus, we are transformed? And I think this, as I say, this is key to our understanding of all the instructions that are going to come later on in the letter as to how we live holy lives. We need to understand what is happening in that moment. Now, as a student, I read, um, I read a book by somebody called John Piper called Desiring God. And it's all about this topic of, of enjoying God and that being the ultimate aim of us as humans. You know, we're built for desire. And that God is the ultimate end of that desire. There is nothing that will satisfy us but God. And that the way we most glorify God is to enjoy him. And he points to a number of different verses. And as he hasn't read that, it completely transformed how I view my faith. Completely how transformed how I view my Christian life. And it opened my eyes to read passages like this one in light of what I think they're actually saying. Because I think we could just, you know, it's only two lines and we can, we can quickly zip past it and, and miss what I think Peter is getting at here. He says, you've not seen him, but you love him. But you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. It's, it's so grand, you can't put it into words. Words can't contain it. And it is full of glory. And that as you do this, you are obtaining, you're taking hold of what your faith wins for you, which is salvation. And I, I, and I think like there's something in that that is just so powerful. Um, and I think that's, so that's what I want us to look at today is I want us to look at joy. Joy that, that takes hold of faith. Take, sorry, takes hold of the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Now, salvation, I think sometimes as Christians we turn salvation into something a lot smaller than it is. Sometimes we can think of salvation as being going to heaven instead of hell when we die. But actually all through scripture, salvation is talked about as not just 
um, a personal uh, rescued from punishment, but salva- the salvation of God that the prophets longed for, which is we always saw when we were in uh, our Easter Sunday, the, the Old Testament prophets longing for the salvation of God to come, is much more than just a personal change of destiny. It is a invasion of the of the broken world by the glory and the goodness of God, his righteousness and his overwhelming goodness sweep into the world. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about salvation, not just a personal, I'm going to heaven now. Um, I don't need to worry about being punished. No, there's something far bigger, the glory of God coming and being revealed on earth. And that is what the prophets long for. So when we talk about joy, you know, we, we're talking about something that isn't alien to us. Everybody wants to be happy. It feels a silly thing to say because it's so blatantly obvious. Everybody wants to be happy. And everything that everybody does, I, I think, is done in the pursuit of happiness, to pursue joy. And I think sometimes people, you know, they might regret a decision that they made, but that's only because in hindsight they say, actually it didn't bring me the happiness that I thought it was going to. When people make a decision about you know, where they spend their money, uh, they, they say, I'm not spending it over there because I think I can get more happiness by spending it here. And so you, this comes out in every area of life. And it comes out in where we spend our time, who we spend our time with. I think I get, I'm happier when I spend time with these people, so I'm gonna spend time with them rather than these guys. And that's just, that's just how we work. We are, we are happiness chasers. We are programmed to want to be happy. And I think sometimes as Christians and people viewing Christian uh, Christians from outside, they can say, well, you're proposing to me, you're putting to me something that says, give up some happiness for holiness. Choose goodness over happiness. And I think what Peter is saying here and what comes out again and again in scripture is those things holiness and happiness are not opposed to each other. It's not a compromise. And so when I got those questions from the, the Christian Union and I was asked to speak, I, I saw that underneath that was the sort of like a, a viewing of Christianity as a compromise. They said, there's all these things over here that are appealing to me, but I'm aware that I can't have all of them and I can't have, you know, maybe I can't dip into that because it's not what is right and so to, in order to be good, I need to give up some of the things that I want. And, and I think that's just a warped view of what Christianity is and what is on offer here. It's a pull towards these things that we see the world doing and we, we want to know how much of it we're allowed to enjoy. But one of the things that I've discovered as I, as I read John Piper's book and as I came again to scripture was there is no ultimate compromise between fullness of joy and fullness of holiness. In fact, the two are found together. In Psalm 16, we're told that in your presence, speaking of God, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, joy doesn't get bigger than that. Fullness of joy forever. The biggest joy you can imagine that lasts indefinitely, absolutely. This is where ultimate joy is. And so anybody who is serious about being happy should find themselves here. 
And so the pursuit of other joys that might take us away from God are, are us believing lies, are saying, no, that thing's going to make me happy. I don't believe God when he says that you know, fullness of joy at, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. I don't believe him, but I do believe that sex is going to give, make me the happiest person that I can be. Or money's going to do that for me. Or success, whatever that might look like. And we believe these lies over what God is saying. Um, C.S. Lewis says this. You know, if you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, what they thought were the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what's happened? A negative term, unselfishness, has been substituted for a positive one, love. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it a suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without, as if abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I don't think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We're told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. There lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. He says, I submit that this has probably crept in from elsewhere but has no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see what C.S. Lewis is doing there? He's saying, look, you know, people think that, that Christianity is somehow about self-denial. And there's this weird idea of what holiness is, is what I do is I, is I deny myself things to make myself closer to God. But scripture, as we see in 1 Peter is, is the pursuit of God. God again and again, he says, no, I am the end of joy. If you, want, if you want fullness of joy, you come to me. Again and again, it comes with invite. that says, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and meet with me. Meet with me, who is the, the, the ultimate fulfillment of all joy. And I think when we grasp this and begin to understand it, we recognise that a number of different things get flipped on their head. You know, if, when we understand that God is where we meet with joy, we realise a number of other things kind of fall in ways that we probably wouldn't have expected them to. C.S. Lewis talking about self-denial says, no, self-denial is not an end in itself. There is, there is something else to be had behind it. 
know, you don't deny yourself something for its own end. That doesn't, that's of no value at all. You know, I, Paul, as he comes to Athens, he walking around the city of all these uh, temples, and he says, I can see you're religious. And he says, but you know, God isn't served by human hands. He's not honoured by you uh, coming and building him a house. He's not honoured by you coming and giving him your finance. That doesn't honour him as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. All things are his and all things are from him. And there's a, a kind of an understanding of, no, God isn't served by us. No, but we glorify God by enjoying him. Now think of this. This is one of the examples that John Piper gives. If you want to make much of a spring, in a mountainside, let's say, there's a spring of water, fresh water that runs and it's beautiful. If you want to glorify that, how do you do it? Do you do it by taking buckets of tap water up the mountain and pouring it into the spring? No, no, because somehow you're, by doing that, you're saying that the spring is insufficient. So you don't serve the spring by trying to add to it. No, you serve it by enjoying it. And equally, you know, with my wife Jen, you know, how do I show her that I love her? Do I dutifully bring her flowers? And when she says, oh, these are lovely, thanks so much, I say, well, I just, it's what I should do as a husband. You know, she, that doesn't go down well because she's not being honoured at that point. No, but she's honoured when I say, I love you and I just want to express my love towards you and I want to enjoy you. And she says, ah, yes, this is honouring. This is honouring. And so the same is true of us and God. We, we, we honour God by enjoying him. And it's from that that we understand things like obedience and salvation and freedom that we were talking about. All of these things come on as a result of seeing that God is where ultimate happiness is. He is, he is what we were made for. That's one of the things that Augustine says, one of the old Christians um, in the early church, he writes, my soul is restless because it was made for you and, and it is restless until it finds its rest in you. There is a longing in each of us that cannot be fulfilled by drink or sex or any sort of success, but can only be met in meeting Jesus. As I say, when we understand this, that God has made us to enjoy him, and that, we, and that the way we live holy lives is, and glorify God to show his value and his worth is by enjoying him. When we understand that he is our ultimate treasure, it flips everything on its head. Suddenly, my Christian walk isn't a walk of I must deny myself these things. It's a walk of, I am going to pursue joy no matter what the cost. If it costs me everything, I will have joy. It shapes our understanding of sin. You know, we recognise that sin isn't just some arbitrary list of things we can't do, things we shouldn't do because God doesn't like them. No, we, it's not arbitrary, it's not plucked out of the air. No, these things, this sin, at its root is believing a lie that something else is going to sell you something better than something God can give you. Sin at its root is saying, I will be happier without you, God, 
then I would be with you. That's what sin is. And so all of these things that would lead us away from him, God says, no, no, those are lesser joys. Don't make those into, your, into primary joys. As soon as you do that, that is sin. God puts it this way and he's, as he's speaking through in the Old Testament through his prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2 uh, verse 13 he says in, as he's speaking judgment against his people, these people who have committed a whole host of sins, he says it boils down to this. My people have committed two evils. Firstly they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and secondly they have hewn out for themselves cisterns broken systems that hold no water. All of their evil, all of their wrongdoing, all of their sin boils down to two things. They've denied God as the ultimate source of joy and they've pursued other things to meet the joy that they know they need to fulfill. And so God says, the reason you're sinning is because you've forgotten what I have on offer. You're missing out on all the things that I want to give you. And you're trying to find it somewhere else. That's sin. And it's, and it's unglorifying. It's, it's degrading. It, it's, saying, you know, it's, it's a lack of faith that says, I don't believe you. I believe that there is something that can do more for me than you, God. It shapes our understanding of salvation. You know, Peter says here that um, joy obtains the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our soul. That's a strange thing to say, that joy is the thing that takes hold of these things. Is it joy? So what, to be saved, I need joy. And so it's, it asks us, it kind of begs a question, what, what does that look like? And I think Jesus tells a story that I think um, expresses that. So Peter says, joy takes hold of, joy by faith takes hold of salvation. Well, Jesus tells this story in Matthew. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. This is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's how joy takes hold of the kingdom. That's how joy takes hold of salvation. It is the joyful pursuit of joy. Now, anybody watching that man would think he's gone mad. Why is he, is he he's selling everything he owns? He's, can't he see what he's losing out on? He's selling his home, his clothes. He's selling everything he can get hold of in order to buy this field. But he does it joyfully. He joys it joyfully, recognising this is going to be the thing that is going to is this is a worthwhile exchange everything i own for this one great treasure jesus says that's what finding the kingdom is like that's what becoming a christian is like i'll say to you if you've not had an experience like that then maybe you've not encountered the kingdom in the way jesus is describing here that's what happens when we have our eyes open to the glory of god this glory that transforms us that moves us what happens is we've seen something that is worth the loss of everything else. Paul says, doesn't he, in Philippians, I, can, uh, I count all things as loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. I would lose everything to lay hold of him. 
Now that's not duty that is able to do that. Do's and don'ts don't bring you to that conclusion. Joy does. Joy does. When you see Jesus as that great treasure, you're willing to drop everything else. You're willing to be burned or fed to lions or mocked and maligned because you live differently. Because you see in him the treasure of your life. This is the great thing that I want and I want you and it will cost me everything else maybe. But I'll have you. That's what Paul is after. That's what Jesus is after. And that's what Peter's describing when he says, this is what takes hold of the glory of God. This is what takes hold of the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That kind of joy. Not a miserable, oh, I suppose I better sell everything then. But joyfully, yes, yeah, forget this stuff. I'm after that. You know, like when you see a little child, they, they will immediately forget what's in their hand as soon as something shiny appears in front of them. Whatever, whatever that was food cup of water it's on the floor I'm after this thing now that's that's that what we're to be like as we see the glory of God we drop everything to get hold of it it shapes our understanding of obedience and we're going to talk a little bit about obedience and holiness um, but but when we understand that our relationship our relationship with God this way you know that that our relationship with God is just him offering himself to us and us saying I want you, I want you. It completely flips how we understand the call to be obedient. So we can hear Jesus say something, as he does in John's Gospel, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we can hear him say that, not as an old man who's saying grumpily to his wife, well, if you loved me, you would do this for me. Now we hear it and say, and we understand that the commandments of Jesus are not rules to be followed, but they are a roadmap to joy. If I want to be happy, I'm going to pursue Jesus in the ways that he's given me to pursue him, to follow him, to take, even at the expense, as we say, to, of other things, I will follow this roadmap to joy. But not only is it a roadmap to joy, the commandments themselves produce joy in us. There is something in them as, as they come, as the word of God comes and meets us, it produces joy that recognises this is the way to joy. <laughs> and as you look through the Gospel of John, you, you recognise that the commandments that Jesus gives are things like, follow me, abide in me, live with me, come and find me, be with me, love me. You think, if Jesus is my ultimate treasure, those are easy commandments to follow. And so Jesus can say things like, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because it's true. Because the love of Jesus causes us to pursue him. So that's what Peter's saying here in this passage. You know, you've not seen him, but you love him. And you don't now see him, but you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That is what happens. That's what, that's what shapes obedience. So as we talk about, okay, don't do those things, but do these things, it comes not as a list of do's and don'ts, but it comes as an appeal to joy. You want to be happy? Pursue Jesus. Here he is to be pursued. Take hold of him. And you know, finally, it shapes my understanding of what I do. You know, right now, you know, I'm not. I don't consider myself your schoolmaster, telling you this is how you ought to live. I don't consider myself as a, a, a lawgiver. You know, don't you know, keeping trying to keep you all in line. No, I. I, like Paul, you know, as he's writing to the churches, he says, you know, we are workers for your joy. 
I'm not lording it over you, says Paul. I'm, I'm a worker for your joy. And so I, I consider myself in that way. As I open scripture, as we look at it together, we, we are working towards joy. Not harsh lawgivers, but people who are saying, I love, I love this, with, with jam around their mouth, offering a plate of donuts saying, here it is, enjoy it. Here it is to be enjoyed, love it. Take hold of it. That's what I do. But not just me, but us as a church. Now Jen and I, we, we joined with um, Redeemer Church in Chester Street um, online um, just last week, actually Sunday evening. We were with them. Uh, we'd been asked to come and speak to them and to share with them something of what we were doing. Uh, they are they too are you know, a few years ahead of us, but they're, they're a recent church plant into Chester Street. And, uh, and so we were sharing just a little bit of, of what we were doing. And they've very generously, they've been praying for us and they've um, given to us as well into the work of uh, Freedom Church here in North Hull. And as we were there, and we were just sharing our heart for, for what we were doing in the north of our city, um, one of them brought a prophetic word pointing to Acts 8, um, the story of uh, Philip, the evangelist, as he's going into um, the cities in Samaria. And one of the lines from Acts 8 is that, as this happened, much joy came to the city. Now actually, when we understand that holding up Jesus, we, but by holding up Jesus, we're holding up a banner that says, this is the way to ultimate joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We are, we are together workers for joy. That's what we, we want to be. We want to see that promise that we believe that, that God has given us. And the, the outworking of that, as we see it in Acts 8, we want to see joy come to this city. And we believe that North Hull will be a happier place because of the gospel. Because we are offering something that sex, that work, that drink, that family can't offer. Things that they, they only give a shadow of. And we say, here is ultimate joy. So we're believing that as we bring the gospel, that's what's going to happen in North Hull. Orchard Park, Endike, Inglemeyer, Cottingham will all be happier places because of what... God is doing here. And I pray as we continue our work into North Hull, as we continue through 1 Peter as a series, as we look at suffering even, we're able to say, you love him. Though you don't, you don't see him in the flesh. Your eyes are open to see him in his glory and you are transformed into such a thing that would love him and is able to rejoice even in suffering with a joy that is full of glory and is inexpressible and obtains the goodness of God that is invading earth, that is invading North Hall. That's my prayer for us as a church. Amen.